This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello and welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 59. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. This is the podcast about everything related to digital transformation, including uh, strategy, people, process, technology, etc. And you can find new episodes every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, as well as all the audio podcast platforms that you might listen to podcasts on. We have an exciting show for you today. We have uh, We're going to start off the show with some hot topics. We'll talk about how to measure project KPIs or what some of the best project KPIs are to measure the performance of your digital transformation. We'll talk about some uh, investments in manufacturing throughout the world that Big Pharma is making in Germany and other parts of the world. We'll talk about how workplace tech is uh, difficult compared to personal technology, and we'll also get into the hybrid workplace and how technology in this hybrid work environment that many of us are in uh, really is being driven by uh, or, or the technology is driving the employee experience. So we'll talk about those and other hot topics here uh, to open up the segment. And then later in the show, our first guest is going to be uh, Christina Serrano, who's actually Dr. Christina Serrano. She is a professor of MIS or IT at uh, Colorado State University. And we're going to have her on the show to talk about the psychology of digital transformation and really get inside the heads and the, the psychoanalysis of understanding what makes people tick and how digital transformation affects people and vice versa. That'll be a really interesting conversation. And then finally, last but not least, we will have Scott Janke from Third Stage Consulting uh, on the show to talk about a case study of organizational alignment during implementation for a midsize, uh, we'll call it a semi-manufacturing uh, company uh, based in North America. So we'll do a little case study to talk about um, the, the organizational alignment and implementation side of things. So before we get to that, though, Kyla, what are some of these hot topics that you have uh, for us today? Yeah, definitely. So we talk a lot about um, just measuring the business value of a digital transformation. And I wanted to get your feedback on some research I had, had done just regarding KPIs. We all know that any project you set key performance metrics in order to understand the success of the project. Um, but this specific research showed the importance of extended KPIs or KPIs that continued after the project was already complete. And I wondered if you could give us maybe an example or just your overall feedback if that is kind of a key to determining the success of any technology implementation or digital transformation project. It is. Yeah, I, I think that's um, two layers of what you're asking. I mean, first of all, you want to know what your definitions of success are um, and have a clear vision for what it is you expect to get out of the project. And the second part of that is it, it really sh it really changes or shifts the thinking from let's just implement on time and on budget, which is important, 
But beyond that, what else is important? I mean, in terms of business value, we want to get out of the, the transformation and that sort of thing. So I think it's a very relevant conversation. It's something that not enough organizations think about when they go through a digital transformation. Absolutely. And, and what about things that aren't exactly hard data to start with on the forefront of an implementation or any sort of technology upgrade, say maybe the people side of the component? I would assume, um, and again, big assumption, that that's more of a long-term data point than a short-term um, we have things like user adoption, but just the overall relationship between the employer workforce and the technology. Is that something that would be considered kind of a post-implementation key performance metric to take into consideration in the long term? Yeah, it can and should be. I mean, if you if you think of your investments in technology as a long-term investment that you're trying to maximize value of or over the long term, then you want to be measuring the results over time. And it may be that your results ebb and flow, you start off strong or you start off weak and it changes and evolves. And as your business changes and as the technology changes, there's a high likelihood you're going to get misalignment between your operational needs and your your technology. So it's really important to make sure that you nip that in the bud by, by measuring these longer term KPIs and really tracking where you're at and how you can be improving and maximizing that value over time. Absolutely. Um, and and speaking of KPIs, we talk a lot about industry-specific in our hot topics um, when it comes to emerging technologies or understanding business goals. Um, and Bayer, which is a, a big pharma um, company, has recently, as you kind of teased in our headlines today, um, invested, it's actually 1.4 billion euros, which is about 1.55 billion US dollars. Um, in new production sites in Berlin. Uh, and the reason for this large investment is because they are moving towards a completely smart and innovative uh, manufacturing shop floor um, and facilities. So some of the things that they're investing in is artificial intelligence, data science, and then I thought this one was pretty interesting, multi-channel marketing. And for me, someone who's in marketing, you know, I get real excited when we actually get to be included in the, you know, emerging technologies and just the overall data science behind marketing. Um, so I wanted to uh, get your reaction to actually rolling in all of your systems, processes, and then also promotion into considering a digital transformation. Yeah. So, uh, what's the question then? As far as what what about rolling in the the yeah. So so the, we don't typically see a company say, "Hey, I'm going to go make a a whole smart shop floor." Usually, it stops there, right? We're going to look at things like data science, but they're talking about they're actually going to roll in their marketing to their digital transformation too. So maybe you know that holistic view is something we talk about across enterprise making sure that all technologies are going through the business transformation, not just one. So I wanted to hear kind of your reaction to that, um, you know, being on more of the system side than the marketing side. Yeah, I mean, I think whether it's marketing or any other part of your business, I think it's really important to recognize that, um, you know, a digital transformation should look at your end-to-end -end business processes and identify areas that can be improved regardless of what area they might be in. So rather than just focusing on manufacturing or just on procurement or financials or whatever the case may be, it's really looking more broadly at the entire uh, operations. 
Um, I think it's also a good indicator of where a lot of organizations are headed with sort of that vertical integration of trying to pull together more data and more visibility, beginning with the customer and even the, pers the uh, prospective customers and understanding what their needs are and projecting demand and trying to anticipate that demand that would then flow into your manufacturing and your planning and all that stuff. Um, so I think it, it really, um, what you're mentioning here, it really plays into the, uh, you know, those two, those two overall trends. Absolutely. And, you know, from the, the marketing side of the house, it is a data-driven science as well. Um, you know, it can come with a lot of creative approaches, but we talk about that a lot with even Christina today talking about kind of novice versus expert and how there is kind of room for that big picture thinking, even if it's not on the, the technical side. Um, but, you know, this this innovation, they actually call it the Digital Innovation Center um, in Germany that bears opening. Um, it's I think it's a good lens into kind of that future of manufacturing. But like we've talked about before in the show, they're actually building it from scratch as opposed to trying to take an existing manufacturing location and put all of these emerging technologies inside of it. And it just goes along with what we talked about a few weeks ago, that that's much easier said than done in an existing. It's almost similar to how I see it, the kind of the cloud a migration approach, whether it's lift and shift or build from scratch, you can kind of take that same methodology and think about building a smart manufacturing floor that a lot of times we've seen with Amazon or some of our bigger um, manufacturing partners that we cover here, that it is actually easier to just completely build it from scratch. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, that is, that is a, a good way to look at it. I mean, you, you kind of I guess it really opens up the different options you have, you know, when you're when you're looking at building from scratch versus not, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can you can approach that. And I think just having a clear vision and a clear alignment around what it is you're trying to accomplish. I think that's the important thing there. Absolutely. Um, and I, you you learn so much from these kind of smart manufacturing pieces. Obviously, we know a lot about just manufacturing operations in general, but you think about everything, you really have to dive into each detail. You know, for example, if you have a robot fulfilling a certain piece of the overall order, how close is that robot to the raw materials because they can't move in the same way that a human person could. So, you know, you, just considering all of those different things um, is just so fascinating to me when we talk about smart manufacturing. I certainly think it's the future, but like a lot of things that we talk about specifically right now in our current climate of technology, it's an evolution as opposed to, you know, just completely flipping a switch and everything is automated. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of improvements you can make without necessarily automating things with technology. It could just be more general process improvements or leveraging the technology you already have. So it doesn't even necessarily need to require some big, massive investments in new technology to, to get some low hanging fruit. Absolutely. And I, I think we talk about that in a variety of things and not only there's a lot you can do internally to optimize the digital transformation experience, but also there's a lot you can do to create a hybrid experience too. And we talk a lot about that with our cloud models, that it doesn't always have to be one or the other. There is room for a phased approach or a growth scale within that overall process. Yeah, absolutely. So one other um, interesting piece of research that I found actually in the Wall Street Journal um, was talking about the, the real big gap between um, 
enterprise technology and personal technology and why that is because there seems to be an ease of use factor to straight to consumer technology as opposed to when you go on um, you know your work technology a lot of times we have authentication we have um, you know all the different security measures that need to be taken when it comes to personal data and within a business environment so one thing I, I wanted to get your take on um, is this, they, they talk about developing a co-working experience rather than a solution. And that seems to be the theme for these last two articles and pieces of research, that technology is now becoming almost part of the work experience. So there needs to be an ease of use for it. Um, so when you talk about, you know, some, some system that the frontline employee interacts with on a daily basis, say, a hundred times. And, you know, either they hate it and they'll find alternative ways to work around it, or they actually leverage the system and utilize for what it's, it's supposed to actually um, be in um, providing value to their overall job flow. So what they called for in this research was make sure to source employee feedback on the technology. And that's one thing that I haven't in my work experience always seen is a straight line of feedback towards a system within a business. A lot of times it's like, oh, you know, that's the way that it is. That's just the way that it works and those types of things. And I wondered if I could get your thought on if that really is kind of shifting where maybe employees might have a more autonomous platform to provide feedback to their enterprise regarding technologies and even just a bit more controllables around the type of technologies they utilize. Yeah, I think it's a, an interesting dichotomy or difference between the, the workplace technologies and the, the consumer technologies. And, you know, especially when you look at the world of, you know, Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter and, you know, some of the, um, or, or uh, TikTok is actually what I meant to say, Twitter maybe not so much, but, you know, some of these more really modern platforms that are super easy to use and intuitive. And, and then you get to these, uh, these enterprise technologies as workforce or workplace technologies, and they're, you know, a lot more difficult to use. And what's interesting is this dynamic has always been there. I mean, I, even in the late nineties, you had like AOL, which at the time was like a revolutionary consumer, <laughs> consumer, um, not a website, but, you know, platform that could be used. But then during that same era, you had AOL, which was pretty slick for that for its time, but then workplaces were using old mainframe green screen systems where you had to memorize, you know, four digit transaction codes. And some organizations, believe it or not, are still running that. So you look at this disconnect between a you know twenty three year old coming out of college who is used to TikTok and Instagram. Now you, you're going to try and teach him to learn how to use a four digit uh, transaction code to enter a purchase order or whatever you want him to do in the system. That's a pretty big disconnect. So I think you have to really keep a pulse on consumer technology and also find out what what employee needs are and how you can better enable, you know, the, the overall employee experience. But at the same time, you know, it can't be a, a full-blown democracy, if you will, in terms of, uh, you know, a bottoms-up democracy on, on the technologies that you use because you need to be pretty deliberate and strategic about how you're going to use technology and what the priorities are. So I think it's just a matter of finding that right balance. And most organizations probably fall too far down the extreme of um, having that disconnect between consumer technologies versus the workplace technologies. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, that's a, a great point is that there has to be some sort of um, bottom line for employee expectations um, as well, or there's just chaos and disorganization. Um, and that's not effective or efficient in any way. 
Um, something else that this this research talked about was um, the over customization of legacy systems. And as an expert in that field, I really wanted to get your feedback on that because it it's almost like um, you know the these enterprises have customized and added bolt-ons and different applications, and now they have processes that can't even be matched with, you know, normal, or I guess I shouldn't say normal, I should say modern, um, say, technology-wise systems or ERP systems. I wanted to see if that was something that you see a lot, maybe a business that had over-customized or something like that. Yeah, it, it it's super common. Um and I, I don't even want to say that it's historically super common, becoming less common because newer platforms are so much easier to use and therefore there isn't a need to customize as much. The The industry says that, but that's not true. I mean, what you're seeing is that I'd say there's just as much, maybe more customization today than there was 5, 10, 20 years ago. So good news, bad news is, you know, technology has advanced quite a bit in the last several years it's become more flexible. It's become easier to customize and to personalize for what your needs are. But the bad news is, is that it also creates the temptation to want to customize just because you can. And so that's a age old debate on, do we, do we allow customization because our people want it? And back to your earlier question about, you know, do we want to just do what people from the bottom up tell us that they want to do from a technology perspective, or do we have more of a top down sort of uh, strategic priority driven approach to technology. Um, you know, those those two things factor in. And it's also a symptom of uh, change management or, or lack thereof. So when there's resistance to change, typically that manifests itself in customization. Because if I don't like the way an off the shelf system works, and I don't want to change, one way around that would be to customize the software to do it the way I want it to do things. So that brings me to my last piece of research here that talks about a study that was conducted in November of 2021 here in the United States that talked about um, absolutely huge gaps in the labor market and this great reshuffling where it really is um, now we have over 10 million job openings uh, in the United States here and, and the ability of technology to really change that employee experience. Um, so this piece talks about how leaders are now facing this question and we kind of just talked about like how do we leverage our technology to communicate to collaborate um, and really to connect our company culture in a hybrid or remote working environment um, and while technology is obviously not the only solution there you can just think about it in the context that we were just talking about it you know if you do have really challenging technical systems that maybe don't all integrate together or don't, um, you know, connect in general. It can be very difficult for your workforce to connect. So the study showed that um, employees are much more likely to stay at an organization if they do have, quote unquote, user-friendly technology, and then over 300% more um, engaged within the overall employee workforce. Um, so I think that that's, you know, a key trend as we look into what does this post-COVID world, and they actually call it COVID tech now because, you know, we just add tech to everything and that's how <laughs> that works. Um, but it, it has become a space in which organizations really have to fulfill in order for the employee experience to be positive. 
So I wanted to see if, if you had worked with any organizations that were maybe forced into a COVID tech transformation or something like that where they needed to be able to work in a different environment than they used to, and it really impacted their overall employee experience. Yeah, you have, um, you know, you certainly had during COVID, you know, the the small percentage of workers that had the ability to work remotely or or in a hybrid work environment, um, you know, that, that certainly, you know, there's a sort of a forced transformation happening there. Um, you also saw forced transformations in uh, certain industries like retail. Uh, obviously, you know, is our, the, the change was already happening in the retail space where organizations and demand was moving away from bricks and mortar toward more e-commerce. Um, but that was just accelerated and fast-tracked during, during COVID be, because we had to, it was, it was a necessity. Uh, but even beyond retail, you know, there's been sort of a ripple effect of just that one sort of mindset of e-commerce and um, sort of an omni-channel approach to where I could go to a store or I could order online. I can order online, but return the products in the store. That sort of mentality has now rippled and in, in, uh, domino or cascaded into other industries too. So like B2B types of businesses, businesses selling industrial products to other manufacturers, for example. Now it's created this sort of e-commerce mentality where we're going to create more of an omni-channel sort of experience for B2B organizations. And that's something that wasn't very common five or 10 years ago, but with COVID and just the whole um, paradigm shifting with people's expectation. And back to your earlier question about consumer grade technology versus workplace technologies and the differences between them, you're starting to see that come together now where people's lives, their personal lives and the work lives are sort of intermingling, intermingling and the expectations around technology and the usage of technology is converging as well. Absolutely. And it surfaced a question for me that I wanted to ask you that wasn't referenced in the specific research, but I wondered if there's a place for like autonomous platforms within the workforce environment where you don't feel as though, you know, the company's reading everything that you're chatting or something like that. Um, do you think that that's, uh, at a, you know, a, a good idea or a dangerous idea or maybe a little bit of both? Yeah, probably a little bit of both. I mean, I, I think, uh, I don't know, I guess it, it depends on the type of uh, culture you're trying to drive as an organization, your management style, um, what your priorities are. Um, you know, if you take more of a command and control approach, maybe it makes sense to have uh, more visibility into what employees do on a at a micro level. But with that comes a, a sort of a level of distrust um, you know, between management and employees. So I think you really have to, you know, look at both sides of that. Yeah, definitely. It would be interesting to have a platform and maybe it already exists where there's some sort of screen, if you will. So maybe you get really top line analytics like word clouds or, um, you know, content themes, but you don't exactly know where they came from or who essentially sent them just in case there is kind of any sort of pockets of, of toxicity within your culture, you're able to address that. So just, a, you know, an interesting um, kind of evolution that we continue to watch here every week with our hot topics. Uh, and I'm excited to hear um, from Christina, our next guest from CSU, who is near and dear to my heart because I am a Colorado State University graduate. 
So um, I was very excited to have her on board. And I think that uh, your live stream with her and just overall conversation about the integration of kind of that people piece of the people process technology uh, and what that looks like from someone who is an IT professor is pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, that, that'll be really interesting. And I'm excited to have her on to talk about um, it's always it's always interesting to marry sort of the academic side of change and technology digital transformation with the the pragmatic real world side of it and seeing how that all comes together and that's exactly why we wanted to have her on the show was to talk about uh, the psychology of digital transformation and how individual behaviors and motives and even cultures at the organizational level at the geographic level how that all influences digital transformation and how digital transformation affects culture and individuals so kind of looking at both sides of the equation there so We'll take a quick break. We'll have uh, Dr. Christina Serrano from Colorado State University on the show. Uh, Kyler's alma mater. You'll get to hear uh, one of her, uh, one of the professors from her alma mater on the show when we take a quick, or after we take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 59. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn and all the audio podcast platforms as well. So be sure to check us out every Wednesday. I'm excited for our first guest on the show here today, which is uh, Dr. Christina Serrano from Colorado State University. We wanted to have her on the show to talk about the psychology of digital transformation, the culture, the individual motives, uh, what makes people tick, and how that all intersects with digital transformation and technology in general. So we thought it'd be a great, uh, a great conversation based on some of her research and experience over the last couple of decades in the space. So with all that being said, Christina, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I saw Kyler's um, message in the chat, go Rams. And I just want to echo that, go Rams. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, so just a little bit about myself. I, um, I do have a PhD uh, my field is management information systems. I got my PhD from the University of Georgia, um, the Terry College of Business. And, um, but my first degree was actually public health as an undergrad. Uh, so I have this very mixed background where I, I, I really have a love for public health and um, health and promotion in general. Uh, but I, I also really love IT. So um, 
I did my best to kind of marry the two when I worked on my dissertation uh, at the University of Georgia. So my, my dissertation research was um, on telehealth implementations and um, various aspects of that, you know, organizational implementation from, you know, the actual consultation and what could um, lead to more successful uh, consultations in the telemedicine space. Um, my work experience in academia uh, is, you know, I'm here at Colorado State University, but before I came here, I worked at the University of Arkansas um, in the Walton College of Business for a while. And that's actually where I was exposed more to ERP um, because that's where my department chair asked me to teach ERP. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I've never touched an ERP. And um, he sent me to all sorts of training. Uh, and now it's 10 years later, you know, and I've been teaching ERP for about 10 years now at the college setting, both undergraduate and graduate. Um, and so I guess that's kind of me in a nutshell, you know, uh, glad so, that we were able to connect and kind of get more of that industry connection with ERP. Yeah, absolutely. And that is how we probably connected us through your through your class and having having me join one of your classes to, to speak recently. So I appreciate that invitation. Um, you may have already answered this question or alluded to it, but I, I want to make sure I don't gloss over or miss it. But how did you how did you make that pivot from public health and undergrad and that sort of area of concentration to then IT? I know you said you, you had a um, someone at the school at your previous school that asked you to teach ERP, but is it right. was there more to it than that, or was there already sort of a a natural extension from the public health uh, mm -hmm. HR types of focus to general IT? Well, uh, you know, since I was a kid, I really cared about health and well-being. I was in sports. I cared about nutrition. It's just kind of a weird kid like that, I guess. Um, so it seemed, it seemed like a natural major to choose. Um, and I even did a research fellowship at the CDC as an undergraduate. So I was really trying to, you know, go all in. Um, this was the late 90s. Um, and so that was when everyone was getting those AOL CDs in the mail and, you know, <laughs> to connect to the internet. And, uh, so it was, it, it wasn't even really a choice, honestly, to go into IT. It just was the timing of how things were unfolding, you know, in tech, technological advancements and how it was permeating mainstream, um, society because I just got sucked in. I couldn't help it. Uh, you know, I learned on my own how to develop websites, you know, as a public health major and um, got a part-time job doing that as well. So by the time I graduated, um, I was just, yeah, I was hooked. And um, my first job was as a web developer. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know that there's, there there are connections between public health and IT for sure. At the time, I didn't know it. So, you know, when I did my fellowship at the CDC, it's when I really understood what public meant in public health, you know? And I was like, oh, public, that means people, you know, like a lot of people, <laughs> you know, not even just, you know, one on one, like in healthcare where you have just the patient. You know, public health deals with populations of people and population health. And I understood very clearly that there was no way to go into that field and, and not have to work with people just all the time. And so, you know, I was like, hmm, 
web development, super fun. I'm just sitting there at the, my desk and playing around on the computer. <laughs> and public right. health is just lots of complexity, lots of people. Um, little did I know, though, that the field of information systems and IT actually deals with a lot of people, too. So it was just a naive, um, you know, misunderstanding my part at the time. But now I understand that there's actually a lot of overlap. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like there's probably more similarities than either of us realized. Uh, yes, for sure. And I think even the pandemic, you know, probably showed a lot of that too. you know, people's resistance to change and yeah. you know, misunderstandings about, you know, innovations, even though they're in the medical field. Um, it's all very similar. Right. Similar stuff. <laughs> right. Well, I, before I jump into um, some of the the questions here, I want to I want to get to your research here in a moment. Just some of the cool. research you've done, and just kind of what have you learned in this in this space over the last couple of decades. Um, but before I do that, I just want to give a quick shout out to some of the uh, audience members that are joining here today. Um, Tatiana from Los Angeles, uh, Jerry from Toronto, Jennifer from Southern, Jennifer from Southern California, um, Dennis from India, um, AWB Solutions from Philippines. And uh, Gasan from Middle East, We've got someone from Mexico, We've got a 49ers fan. I'm not sure why we'd have a 49ers fan on the uh, cool. on the on the on the session here today, but uh, just kidding. That Tatiana, who's the the 49ers fan, and uh, and of course Kyler uh, on the line as well. So thanks everyone for letting us know where you're joining from today. Um, it's always good to see where where in the world everyone is is here today. And again, be, be sure to drop any questions you have in the chat box, and we'll uh, be sure to get to your questions as we as we get going here. So this is a really broad question that could go a million different directions. And I fully acknowledge it. It may not be fair as a first question or a first real question for you, um, okay. but I'll ask it anyway and see if we can do maybe a flyover view or a summary. But when you think about the time you've spent in IT and the research you've done as, as in the world of academia, academia um, mm -hmm. what, what are some of the biggest takeaways or lessons that you have from you know, the things you didn't know 20 years ago when you started doing this stuff? Till now, what are some of those biggest lessons learned or uh, takeaways from your research? Yeah, um, so I'll, I, I'm a big picture thinker like you, so I think I might start more um, at the big picture level sure. uh, and, and then where it's brought me today. Um, and so, you know, I, I started my PhD in 2006. Um, in the very first year of my PhD program, you know, we have to learn a lot of fundamentals about research, about our discipline. Uh, and so, you know, my discipline being information systems. Um, and a lot of people confuse information systems with computer science or, you know, computer engineering and, and don't really understand the difference. And, and where I am right now, it's actually my department is computer information systems. So it makes it even more confusing. Um, but what was really clear, you know, in that first year of my PhD program is, is, you know, understanding, of course, what is information systems as a discipline? What does it mean? And our discipline is, is essentially captures the combination of people, processes and technologies and how they all have to come together, work together to uh, manage information to achieve organizational goals. Um, and you know, ideally shared goals, right? Is <laughs> what we want. Um, still, uh, at that time in 2006, 
we the, the field as a whole was a bit disrupted um you know around that time it was after the dot-com bust and uh there were declining enrollments um not just in information systems but also computer science and other computing fields um and so we were all kind of in this identity crisis uh, really trying to understand, you know, how can we remain relevant and serve the needs of um, the future. Uh, so in my field, there were a, a slew of publications around that time, or they had come out a few years earlier when I had started the PhD program. So they were still fairly fresh. And it was kind of, you know, um, who are we? You know, what kind of, what kind of things are we supposed to teach and publish? Uh, and it, the battle was really more of this holistic information systems. Um, you know, are we all of this? Because, you know, isn't that more management? Isn't that psychology? Isn't it all these other disciplines? Uh, and so we did really hone in on the tech. You know, I think that's what really won the day um, in that feud about who are we as a, as a field. And so subsequently, you know, it, Every paper you submit to a journal that you, you know, about your research, there is this question, where's the IT artifact? You know, are you talking about IT at all? Um, because if not, you know, maybe desk reject, you know, we, we don't want to hear it. Um, and, and I get that, you know, I get that in terms of in a business college, we have to differentiate ourselves from management, from, you know, other disciplines. Um, my sense now, <laughs> Uh, all these years later is it was a pretty big mistake um, for our field to take that turn because it's really in the holistic space of people processes and technology and how they have to work together synergistically um, in a really careful dance <laughs> you know almost like a marriage you know um, that's where innovation really takes place you know mm -hmm. once you take the IT out of the people and the processes and try to look at it um, alone, you just, you miss out on, you know, a lot of the things that your your firm is trying to do, right? When you, when you're talking about these major organizational IT implementations, it's, it's not just about the IT. In fact, it's usually the IT is not the problem. Usually it's usually right. in the people and the processes and that space. And unfortunately um, I do feel a lot of researchers who, have been responsible for kind of you know researching this and teaching it and innovating in this space um have done you know exactly what industry has done and that's look at the tech you know kind of and not look at the whole picture yeah it's easy to become enamored by the technology and focus on bells and whistles and innovations in the pure tech space without looking at the people in process Absolutely. i mean we still will look at things like tech impact on organizational performance and you know our outcome variables are still very relevant to a business it's just you know we're not looking at our models holistically to account for a lot of the people and processes too unfortunately yeah yeah it's a good point and that's a lot of what we want to talk about especially the the technology and people in particular i think that's a lot of what we'll cover here today of course processes fit into that as well Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll pick up the conversation with Christina. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. 
And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 59. We're here with Christina Serrano talking about the psychology of digital transformation. But in speaking of that, I guess just to kind of shift gears and maybe dive into that a little bit more, um, part of your research I know focuses on how IT impacts individual identities and cultures. Um, just what are some of your high-level observations or thoughts or learnings in that area in terms of how tech affects or, or transformation affects We'll call it digital transformation affects individual and um, identities and cultures and, and vice versa as well. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when I first started to do research at, in the organizational space, I was really interested in organizational culture. Uh, and so I, I started a study. Um, it's a longitudinal case study. This was actually looking at libraries um, it, because at the time uh, it was 2006, yeah, 2007, um, I had access to a particular case, a library that had been built and open, uh, and it has no books. You know, it was intentionally designed to be a bookless electronic library, still a physical space, but uh, looks very different when you walk into it. Um, and, and that actually meant everything. So we were looking at culture uh, you know, in terms of how did the librarians adjust to this and, um, you know, what does it mean in terms of, you know, their culture as an organization in this bookless library. But what we actually found was, um, I say we, I have one collaborator at the University of Georgia, uh, Dr. Marie Pedro. Um, we found was that their identities, you know, it, within the culture space, identity really became a prominent theme uh, in, in, in their identity threats and how they responded to those identity threats. Um, so, you know, culture is very important, uh, but I think where my research has taken me is that within the culture space, identity is almost everything, you know, because it, 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 it deals with who we are as human beings, even in the workspace, you know, who, who are we as a librarian, you know, if I'm a librarian. Uh, and the threats to that, 
I've found that, you know, we all respond to identity threats. We all have our, usually our default is some sort of defensive or protective type of response to start. And that's exactly what they did as well. Um, you know, they were really trying to uh, say, hey, we're still relevant in this space. You know, we're not going to be one of these people groups that gets uh, sucked into de-skilling because of technology. You know, we want to make sure we're still relevant. Uh, but it, no matter what they did, they could not combat the just the misperceptions of the people they were serving. So it didn't matter how often they put up, say, read posters, for example, of, you know, celebrities reading books in the building. It didn't matter how often they had a portable bookmobile for checkout or, you know, all the things that they tried to do to say, hey, we're still librarians and this is a library, so please use it like a library instead of a computer lab. Um, it just didn't work. It didn't work. They tried to even, you know, change the desktops on the computers to be more like, hey, you're in a library. and But their patrons still looked at them like um, directional assistants at the desk who would still ask, you know, where's the bathroom, where's the stapler? Um, and these are people with master's degrees or higher, you know, I mean, they are, they are very skilled um, in their expertise. Um, so what we found is, is, is that when the masses kind of, uh, when it becomes imbued more in the societal culture, you know, because this wasn't the only place where, you know, it's becoming digitized and as a library and uh, you're now going to databases, right, to look at research. You're not pulling books and journals from the shelves and photocopying anymore. That's just not the behavior um, that, that, you know, the patrons are, are engaged in. Uh, so when that happens, there's really no stopping the train. You know, it doesn't matter what, as an organization, you try to do to say, hey, you know, we, we want to resist this or say, you know, it's still this old model or, you know. So what they had to do was essentially um, embrace it. You know, they just had to. They had to make it a part of who they are. Um, so they had to adapt their identity to uh, this new technological landscape, you know, because that's the only way to stay relevant. And, and even though this was a case study, a longitudinal case study with a library and librarians, I do think the lessons gleaned from that case study are generalizable, you know, uh, the way that consumers, the way that it's just all baked into our societal culture, uh, technological adoption. There's just, there's no stopping that train, really. Um, I think organizations just have to embrace it, have to respond to it, have to understand the employees that they onboard that are even you know, younger generation. I mean, it's different. There's a different culture. Yeah. Um, and so it, culture identity, it's all very much tied together. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And um, actually Sam Graham on LinkedIn has, a, has an interesting uh, related question, which is to what extent is organizational culture affected by the culture of the country that it is in. Uh, for example, he worked in a country where it's considered rude to say no. Um, and so how do you navigate, you know, some of those geographic cultures? Because I think what you're talking about is more um, just the culture of an organization or the individual, the individual trace of a individual. Um, but how, you know, how does a geographic culture affect all this? Oh, for sure. And, and, and uh, I encourage Sam to take a look at, there's a website, um, 
on um, well, this was actually national culture. Uh, so I think that's what he's talking about, though, country culture, too. Uh, Hofstede is, 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 is a big name in that space. And there are researchers who will take some of his research with a grain of salt. But that's, you know, any research, truly anything that's produced by humans. <laughs> you know, you, you, you know that there's going to be some flaws in it. Uh, but if, if you look up Hofstede uh, national culture, you, you'll find that it's even searchable. Um, it's a really great website because you can compare national cultures as well. Um, and, you know, it, so for example, it would put United States um, as a highly individualistic, uh, you know, that's in our culture. Um, it also says that in the United States, we have more of a short-term orientation instead of a long-term orientation. So that even um, filters into how we have uh, quarterly reports and, you know, shorter reporting times for some of our goal settings. Uh, but they have, there's these lots of different dimensions, even, you know, masculinity to femininity and, and, you know, that's why, you know, some of this is, has been questioned, but it's been research out there for decades. And, um, so I would encourage them to check that out, but it, it does definitely have some impact for sure. Um, even in the pandemic, we saw that, right? I think that, you know, some societies that were just inherently more collectivism in their national culture, the way that they responded compared to countries that were much more individualistic in their culture, just totally different, right? Mm. Um, I don't, I don't know that there's a whole lot uh, we can do to change, you know, something as big as national culture. Uh, but what Sam is saying is like it's considered rude to say maybe no in a culture. I mean, I think all we can do is kind of more educate ourselves and um, ask questions, you know. That's all I have for that, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and this, this kind of builds on a point that you just mentioned as far as one of the dimensions of culture um, with uh, masculinity and femininity. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, and this question is from Kyler on LinkedIn who asks in honor of National Women's Day, which I didn't know it was National Women's Day. So uh, good to know. Uh, thanks Kyler for pointing that out. And, <laughs> and building on identity, how is women in technology shifting and cultural misperceptions transitioning? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if we're, we're seeing a huge increase in women, you know, flooding to STEM fields yet, <laughs> but there definitely has been an uptick in efforts, you know, in recruiting and trying to be more mindful of what are the barriers. Um, you know, even at CSU, uh, the computer science department in my department, computer information systems, uh, we received a joint grant uh, through um, Northeastern University, it's from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, to increase, you know, women enrollment in our programs, our concentrations, our certificate programs. Um, I mean, there's, so there's, there's more awareness uh, about it. I just, I don't know yet if we've totally untangled all of the the barriers truly, you know, what, what are the real reasons that, you know, are preventing women from maybe even choosing this as a concentration or a career, uh, but also retention, you know, so, you know, keeping women in these fields is also difficult if they choose it to begin with, you know, that they'll, they'll tend to leave. Um, so turnover can be high. Uh, it's getting better. That's all I can say, <laughs> you know, it's getting better. We're working on it. Um, I hope to see a lot of improvement in this area um, in the next, hopefully, 10 years. 
And I imagine it's um, a lot of variation in different parts of the world and different cultures of how, how far that's come along versus not. And um, maybe in 10 years, it, we get a little bit more even uh, in terms of how we've evolved. Yeah, I think so. I mean, what we're finding is that the interventions that we would implement to increase women enrollment actually just increases enrollment period across the board, across all demographics. You know, it, it, so it's I think the barriers preventing women um, from choosing these careers are also preventing a lot of other people, whether they're women or not, from choosing these careers. A lot of it has to do with uh, stereotypes, you know, myths that we have to debunk about STEM fields. Um, so it's a lot of work to be done, honestly. Yeah, yeah. And actually, we may, um, may have, I, I may have unintentionally stirred some controversy on uh, YouTube. Uh, I think, and I think what he's uh, saying, um, Nanudin on YouTube is saying, I thought it's International Women's Day, not National Women's Day. So uh, if I misspoke there, uh, thank you for the, the uh, correction. I'm not sure if it's national, just a U.S. thing, or if it's uh, international. Oh, sure. um, point still, still the same, though, as far as um, women involvement in technology. Um, so here's another question that is actually going to lead into a question that we have here on LinkedIn that I want to get to, but I kind of want to segue into it. Uh, but the question is, um, you know, when, when you and I talked kind of preparing for this interview, um, you, you talked a little bit about the neuroscience of human behavior and change. And I'll fully admit I'm getting way over my head here as we talk about neuroscience. Well, I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist either. I want to be very clear. <laughs> okay. You probably know more about it than I do, but um, okay. <laughs> which is insane a lot, I suppose. But, um, but when you look at neuroscience and human behavior and change, um, what what are some of the what are some of your learnings or observations in, in that realm? Yeah, so what I'm learning is that uh, research is just really coming out about some of this now, you know? So if you looked to the research before 10, 20 years ago, uh, even the capabilities to conduct this research were not nearly as robust as they are now. Uh, so it's been about I want to say about 10 years in the information system space that we've uh, had this sub discipline that's kind of emerged or this sub sort of research area and it's called neuro is and um, there are even colleges of business uh, businesses in the world now that have these more neuro kind of labs for research so they're equipped with you know, EEG, eye tracking, um, other types of biosensing data that will, can track like heart rate, perspiration. Uh, there are some researchers in IS now getting into studies that leverage fMRI um, technology for brain scanning. Uh, obviously, we have to do a lot of partnering with other disciplines in medicine to be able to best interpret this data and, and understand what it means. But um, all of that kind of stemmed from most behavioral research, you know, is, is uh, subjective, you know, in, in, in the way that we measure it, you know, we get a lot of self report data, you know, perception based type data on surveys, or, you know, we might observe behaviors, but then we're not really in the minds of people to understand, you know, what's making them behave that way. Um, so I'm really excited that we're, we're getting into, you know, that's the nice thing about Moore's law, right? Is that we are getting even better 
brain scanning kind of tech to be able to use for research, even some, you know, like EEG that's uh, portable now. So we'll be able to have people wear these sort of nets. <laughs> Maybe there's wow. a way they can hide it, you know, uh, but, you know, it connects to um, their brains and it can be scanning, you know, all, more continuously or all day. So they can, you know, we could see how they actually interact outside of a laboratory space, you know, and with the with the technology they're using, um, you know, how is it while they're driving, you know, how, you know, when they're shopping in a store, when um, versus when they're at home. So across context, it's really exciting. Um, so that's number one. Is that you know one, we're just really now starting to see. Um, this research come out from a more neuroscience standpoint of you know behavior change and what what triggers it. Um, two, I mean, I think there's just a lot we're going to find out honestly because of that in the next five to ten years. You know about the way humans really tick, the way their brains tick, and how this bleeds into the organizational space um, and how people even work together. I mean, forget technology. You know how do just people work together in teams and make that collaboration work so we can have innovation. Um, I, I believe, because we've talked, you and I have talked, you know, so um, this isn't based on any fMRI data or anything or any studies that I've done. So I just want to make that clear. <laughs> it's just based on a lot of what I've read from studies that have been done and what I've observed in my own research um, is, you know, I think that, you know, people have inherently, you know, I think this is uh, nature, different types of processors in their brains, you know, um, and we don't know it, you know, we don't even realize it, you know, we're, we're talking about things now, you know, unconscious biases, implicit biases, and things like that, you know, that, you know, over 90%, you know, of the decisions we make are unconscious, um, and we don't necessarily know why, you know, we're, we're kind of operating off of different scripts we've developed. Um, so I think that once we start looking under the hood a little bit more, so to speak, um, and in and, and the way that our brains work, we're going to find out that a lot of organizational conflict probably stems from people uh, who, who think differently. They have different thinking orientations, and they just don't even realize it. You know, it's almost like we're speaking different languages, but we don't even know it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, you're, you're touching on this whole thread or this whole thought that, there's so many complexities and layers of the complexities of change in terms of the, the people impact because you have sort of that individual, you have the call it the geographic culture or sort of the broad based culture of wherever the organization is or, you know, whatever country or religion or, you know, whatever the location is. Um, and then below that, you have the culture of the organization, which could vary even in the same geography. And then within that one organization with that distinct culture, you have individuals now with different things that make them tick and different um, psyche, you know, things that, that motivate them to change or not. Yep. Yes. So, and so it's, it's really interesting because, you know, I think we just really never talked about it at all before. We just um, now there's a little more openness and transparency. So I, you know, I see this as a professor in the last 10 years, um, there's definitely more of an openness, say, even of students, you know, divulging, you know, different information about the way that they might process information or, you know, issues that they might have. And so 
you know, we've had huge increase in accommodations that we provide for students. And, and, and in that space, you know, they're referred to as disabilities, but truly I don't think a lot of these things are actually disabilities. I think this is just people who are oriented differently. They think differently. They might, uh, for example, I think there are some people with ADHD, for example, who are diagnosed who might just, um, yeah, you know, have a different relationship with time, you know, perceive it a bit differently uh, than others and process it differently in their brains. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily a disability, but it is something to accommodate in a space where we're trying to use these sort of one size fit all approaches to how, you know, uh, we teach and how we do different things in organizations. You know, we want to have a policy that works for everybody. We want to have you know processes that work for everybody. Um, but instead of, you know, thinking about at the individual level, how people are going to have different needs in the processes, we try to sort of retrofit the people to the processes. So some get accommodations, some kind of fit, you know, some, you know, and it, in my mind, I'm like, I don't know that that's really the way to do it. You know, I think we can design our processes much smarter um, so that they do just naturally accommodate everybody, you know, no matter where they come from or what they're bringing uh, to the table. Right. But that requires process reengineering and rethinking the way we do things and changing status quo and norms. And that's just, that's just really that's hard. Scary. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's kind right. of what you do and consult on, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, it's, and I think you you said it well when you said there is no one size fits all approach mm -hmm. to change, and nor can there be when you look at those three layers of overall culture, organizational culture, and then individual motives. Um, so that's a, a great point. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll pick up the conversation with Christina. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 59. We're here with Christina Serrano talking about the psychology of digital transformation. So maybe building on that a, a bit more, this is, here's a question from Andre on YouTube. Um, he asked the question of how adaptable are individuals in high power distance societies insofar as ERP and IT and digital change is concerned. Do you have oh, any thoughts on that? Wow, that's a that's question. A, I didn't expect that one. Thanks, Andre. <laughs> okay, so high power distance. Um, so that would mean there's there's more authority and there's more respect for authority in high power distance cultures. You know, they're very um, hierarchical, um, you know, and it's interesting because I think in the United States, for example, you 
if you look at Hofstede's website, you know, I'm, I'm guessing I have to look at it, but if I had to guess, it would probably say we have more of a low power distance culture, meaning, you know, there's a lot more individual freedoms. Um, there's more, you know, participative input, you know, it's more democratic, you know, all these sorts of things. Uh, what I find though, is that even if at a national level, you might have that stipulated as a culture, that doesn't mean that's what's represented in organizations, right, in that culture. And mm -hmm. you see that in the United States a lot too, you know, where we still do have hierarchical kind of structures um, with power distance in organizations. You know, the CEO is always gonna have more power than, you know, someone who's just newly onboarded as a, as a newcomer to the organization, fresh out of, you know, their degree program. Um, but yes, in high power distance societies, I would say that um, it says how adaptable are individuals. I think that, you know, it would, it would uh, in some ways also hinge on um, how faithful, I guess, that, that society can be to that, that particular element, that dimension of culture. Um, in a very strict standpoint, I would say high power distance, that would mean that authority is respected, you know, and, and if they do have that respect, then they can make their um, followers adapt, you know, when they need to adapt. Uh, but that only works, you know, when, when the individuals are willing to follow um, that authority and that power. Um, and, I, and I think that it's one thing to see something in theory, you know, in a, in a model with boxes and arrows and whatnot, but seeing it instantiated in practice and reality in the way that humans actually, in our real worlds, it usually doesn't work that cleanly. <laughs> so yeah. I would say, yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah, you know, could be really adaptable if, if, if that high power uh, structure is really respected and um, ethical, right? And so the people buy into it. Um, but if, if there's doubts, you know, if there are doubts, just like in an organization, right, among the followers about what those in power are deciding the humans need to do to adapt, um, then you'll still get that resistance. Um, uh, and if they're, if, if they're too controlling or too um, kind of authoritarian in the way that they try to implement that change, uh, you also might get resistance, you know, but again, that's, that's from individuals who might be like, that's not ethical, right? Like, I, you know, I want to follow leaders and authority who have my best interests at heart too. Yeah. It, and it also seems like you might have um, a higher resistance to change or more of a change issue if your organizational culture, especially in this, in the Hosteeds model is different than the national culture so in other words as you're talking it made me think well if i'm a you know if i'm an american which i am i'm in the u.s and i'm used to this lower power distance uh, sort of approach but i work for an organization that's more command and control mm -hmm. does that i wonder if that dissonance between like the organizational culture and the oh, country absolutely that, that create more absolutely problems. it would it would because you know what my research is taking me to is 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 the individual level. I mean, I know we, we're looking at a lot of things more at the macro level, but it, it all starts more at a local level, you know, and, uh, and at an individual, um, and this might be have a Western bias because that's a lot of the research I look at. Um, you know, it's all stuff published in English and stuff like that. 
but uh, at least you know what I've been reading um, would indicate that individuals, even as employees and organizations, are moving towards a place of wanting more authenticity um, in the workplace, wanting to be able to align their personal values, you know, all the way up to you know org national, you know, they want that alignment, you know what I mean? Um, because when you have all those conflicts, that's where things really do fall apart. So, you know, if, if a person has high moral values in terms of, um, say, equity or fairness, you know, and that's something they really feel strongly about, um, if they don't see that being enacted in their organization, you know, in which they work, uh, they may end up jumping ship. I think we're seeing a lot more turnover in, in um, organizations now as people are kind of like, you know what, I really want to find a place that aligns with my values too, you know? Yeah. 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 So that alignment is, is important. I, I suspect, and, and that's something I hadn't thought of before. And then the other dimension here that this sort of, or another semi rabbit hole that this uh, takes my brain down is when you think about, um, you know, the, the, um, the effect that this all has on, on people, um, and, and just, you know, how, the, what the overall impact is and, and how the culture is affected by that. Um, you know, how, to, how is resistance to change? Um, you know, how, how does resistance to change manifest itself in that? I mean, in terms of, uh, let me rephrase it. Maybe I'm, I'm having trouble getting this thought out or this question out. Um, but when you, when you think about the, the way you might want to change your culture, let's try this. If you, if you you recognize that you're a command and control authority, authoritarian type of organization, in theory, and if, if that's aligned with your national culture, in theory, maybe people will change because it's aligned with the culture they're used to. That's the way the organization is. You tell them to change and they're going to change. You know, I'm, I'm oversimplifying. Mm -hmm. But that same organization may say, well, you know, maybe we should be a little bit more collaborative or a little bit less mm -hmm. uh, power. What, what's it called? A little lower power distance. Uh, right. as a you're not going to change that overnight. So how do you, how do you see culture potentially evolving as a result of the digital transformation or an IT initiative? I mean, I really think if, if I mean, you might not like this answer, Eric, but <laughs> I think it's, you know, your work and organizations that do the kind of work you do are going to become really, really important in the next 10 years. I mean, you've been important. But as we see, you know, technology is rapidly accelerating. We're talking about exponential growth, you know, and so it's just going to get faster and more complex. Um, and it's already been difficult for us to adjust to. So I imagine in the future it's going to become even more challenging. So those who do more of what you do are going. You may, you might have to, you know, and we can maybe talk in another meeting, but I think that, you know, there might be some additional things you might have to bring to the table um, to organizations to really help smooth some of these transitions. Um, because, you know, we talk a lot at the macro level, but I think all everything we see at the more macro level are um, side effects or downstream effects from what actually happens at the individual level, you know, in each employee, in each individual citizen in a society, because we're the ones who come together and then create these macro phenomena together. Uh, but until we can get more at the individual level, people 
willing to change, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a reason New Year's resolutions never go well, you know, generally speaking. I mean, this is forever, year after year, this never changes. Uh, so it's, it's something that really needs to be tapped more at the individual level. And like you said, there's no cookie cutter solution. There's no one size fits all. So it's going to have to be something that we have to figure out how to more on an individual basis, understand what barriers exist, um, for humans to, to change and evolve. And, um, I don't think all of it exists in the business space. You know, I, again, this is my big picture thinking, you know, I look at our inputs to organizations come from somewhere. They come from our K through 12 systems. They come through our college or higher ed systems. Um, you know, all of that has to adapt to, you know, to the needs of the future and preparing our, our young learners uh, for the needs of the future. But then we also have the folks like you and me and those older than us, you know, some of us who who've lived in a world where it's not this frenetic, it's not, you know, we know we, we do remember a slower pace and when we could fax things and it wasn't all instantaneous, you know, um, and we have to adapt too. you know, we have to understand we're not living in the 1970s anymore or the 1980s. And, and, and there's never going to be a, t a way to bring that back. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. that ship has sailed. Right. <laughs> so, um, worse, you know, it's not coming back. Yeah. But I think it has to be more at the individual level. And, and I do think that some of what um, we were talking about before about convergent thinking, divergent thinking, you know, this is all stuff that's going to have to come to the table. Um, and that's kind of akin to these ideas of vertical thinking and lateral thinking, which, you know, again, deals with your space and ERP, right? Um, it, in fact, the textbook I, I've used for years and years called it sideways thinking um, for like lateral thinking uh, mm -hmm. and saying that all employees, like this isn't just a management level requirement, you know, all employees in an organization have to develop that sideways thinking or lateral thinking, you know, being able to understand where, you know, whatever they're doing in the organization, what comes before, what comes after, what are the impacts of your work on everything else in the organization? Um, because when we have people who are too vertical in their thinking, you know, too convergent, um, we can get really high specialization and real high expertise, which is awesome but it makes them blind to, you know, the impact of that specialization, you know, what, what they're doing and how it bleeds into the rest of the organization. So I, I don't know exactly how to change that because I think some of that is more at the innate level, you know, and, and, and some of how we're wired to think. Um, but I think there are ways that we can, you know, teach different ways of thinking, because I think no matter what our predominant orientations might be, we are all going to have to learn to be more than ambidextrous, you know, in the way that we think so that we can, uh, you know, invoke the right thinking tool set, you know, in the moment, you know, if there's something that requires a bit more creativity in the moment, do we know how to take that tool out of our toolkit? and have that more creative thinking enacted. If we have to be a little bit more focused and vertical, do we know how to pull that tool out of our toolkit? And what about convergent and divergent thinking? You mentioned that to me when we spoke before um, in preparation right. for this discussion, and I found it super fascinating and super relevant mm -hmm. um, to this yes. 
to this whole world of transformation, digital transformation. So maybe help us understand what's the difference between the two and how does that, how is that relevant to what we're talking about here today? Yeah. And so, so when I say convergent thinking, um, this is also, you, you see it a lot more in this vertical thinking space and it's, it's more of, um, you know, you're given a set of, um, facts and information, uh, and it's, so both are problem solving types, you know, ways of thinking. Um, and so in convergent thinking, you're, you're kind of given the information, um, at the outset, but it's still complicated. You still have to figure out the right solution from all of those different facts. Um, but there's usually one solution, like you're converging, right? You're, you're, you're focusing, um, Divergent thinking, on the other hand, is, you know, you might not be presented with all of the facts and information you need to solve a problem. You're given a particular prompt and and, and you're given a goal, you know, like this is what we're going for. Um, and then you have to go forage, explore and figure out what different facts and what different solutions um, might be relevant. So you might not come up with what you come up with many, you know, many different solutions um, to try to figure out which one might be the best, or maybe there's a whole set, right? That um, more than one answer can be right at a time, right? And and, and that is just difficult for humans to accept, um, even in politics, right? You know, it's, it's there's always like, oh, my side's right, no, my side's right. And, and, and it's very seldom do we have people saying, you know, actually it's all right you know it's there but we just have to pivot twist slice dice same things we do with data right to understand when this is right and when this is right um so you know siloed thinking right organizations are siloed they specialize they have an accounting department they have their hr department they have you know uh, and that's just how organizations have been I, I don't know i imagine that's how yours might be too you know divided you have specialists um, but anytime you have that really specialized knowledge that it's going to really, uh, promote that vertical thinking, um, instead of integrated, you know, and instead of more divergent and lateral sideways thinking. Uh, so I think some of it is just bringing this language to bear in organizations and saying, Hey, these are things we have to work on. All individuals have to kind of work on both of these. Because it's not like, oh, divergent thinking is better or lateral thinking is better. They're both really great. And they're both tools we should be sharpening. Yeah, that's, that's really well put and a good good summary. And it seems like that that in our industry at times, it feels as though the convergent thinking or the vertical thinking is, is pushed a lot more. Yes. In other words, you know, when you're a software vendor or a system integrator that specializes in one type of technology, that's the right answer, you know, in, in your mind or in that... Yep. World. standardized tests even right i mean like yeah. you know that's again that's going to education but there's always one right answer right on those you know when you, that you bubble in or whatever yeah. and so i mean it's even baked into our education systems it's 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 baked into how we teach people how to think so that's something that you know yeah there's it's complicated what you deal in is complicated because it's not just at the organizational level you know that like there there are impacts outside of organizations, even regulations and laws, and you know, all of that will have an impact on, on how effectively an organization can change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you helped me understand why, as a kid, I always struggled with multiple choice tests. I really struggled with them because oh to me, there wasn't one answer. I, yeah. I always felt like, dude, there's two possible answers here at the yeah, end. Absolutely. Um, me too. I, 
<laughs> and that and that's way you know i would say people going through a transformation while while you want to have some specialization whether you're a technical person or business process or change management or program management whatever it is you need that specialization but you also have to i think challenge yourself to be more divergent and look more integrated at the whole big picture because i think that's where we mess up is we we focus so much on our myopic little areas and these are big massive transformations and we don't get it right typically when we when we take that approach okay we're going to take a quick break when we come back we'll pick up the conversation with christina you're listening to transformation ground control we'll be right back If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 59. We're here with Christina Serrano talking about the psychology of digital transformation. Another question I wanted to get at here, um, which I, I think is really interesting. This is from Gassan on LinkedIn. He asked, as, as companies become legacy with staff turnover for key positions at approximate zero years, does organizational change resistance increase whether intentional or unintentional has this been measured? So I think that you know, maybe to paraphrase or try to paraphrase, as organizations bring in newer, fresher, younger blood, whatever you want to call it, new, newer people to the organization, how does that affect resistance or acceptance of change? Have you seen any correlation there? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, turnover is, is very disruptive to organizations. You know, I, I mean, I see it now even in our, my own organization. In the pandemic, there's been a really high turnover. And, um, you know, even when you bring in new people, you know, it's 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 all of that conflict you're talking about. You know, is that value alignment there? You know, as you bring in new individuals, uh, are you also bringing in a wave of new types of values? You know, that are reflected in a different generational space. You know, um, in so. I think it all depends, you know, I hate to always give those answers, right? Like it depends, but it does. It depends on, um, you know, the culture of the organization to begin with and, you know, the culture that people, the incomers are bringing to the organization. Uh, but I would say in general, frequent turnover is not something an organization wants because you can't, you can't keep your knowledge um, in place, you know, that, that, that core knowledge base you might need. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's something about, um, it has something to do with culture and identity and this, this research, because that all of that takes time to really form and solidify. Um, and so when you have all of this, like these micro uh, disruptions and, and stuff that punctuate that process, it's really hard to 
to forge like good culture and identity. Um, you know, at the same time, my ethical values would tell me that I, uh, I think it's fine for people to leave organizations, right, and to try you know new careers and and and. But at the same time, yeah, it does it does cause a bunch of disruption. I think until we can get systems, human resource systems that are more resilient. Um, meaning, you know, we have better systems where if somebody needs to uh, tap out, someone else immediately taps in who can fill in, you know, we can allow people to tap out more and, you know, take the breathers that they need or go back to school or, you know, the things that we all want as humans to grow um, without making them feel like, oh, I can't do that because maybe, you know, there's going to be negative consequences. Um, you know, if I leave, maybe they're going to be, they're not going to have someone for however long it takes to onboard someone new. Um, that, I mean, that's the reason I don't leave a lot of times from organizations, because I understand the the burden, you know, it's going to put on my colleagues um, until they find a replacement. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know if I really answered that question well, but uh, hopefully yeah. I gave them some insights to help. Well, just another dimension that you have to think about as, as part of a transformation. I mean, you, you talked about layers of culture and individual motives and behaviors, and then you've got um, this whole this whole thing with, um, you know, turnover and how, how tenured is the staff. That affects your culture, which affects how resistant or open to change that organization is going to be. So there's just so much, so many moving parts you've got to consider uh, in that right. roadmap. Right. Yeah, because I think that, the, you know, the best change is enacted yeah, I know we always talk about buy-in and everything. <laughs> I think that's all in the literature. <laughs> and but you know, when there's genuine, you know, genuine buy-in, but I think that buy-in has to come from a place not of leadership, you know, providing the best, you know, uh, spiel about why they need to embrace change. I think it needs to come from a place within each individual person of 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 being like, you know, I value this. I value innovation. I value my company trying something new. I value learning new skills, you know? So maybe I have to change my job role. Maybe I do, but I value learning and growing. So like, I'm going to go with it. Um, until we can get more of that, I think uh, we're, we're going to have problems with change no matter the context. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one question that's a little bit off track from the thread round, but I want to make sure we get to it before we, uh, while we still have time here. And that is, um, and, I, and you mentioned this to me when we were prepping for the, the interview, you mentioned this to me, to me in sort of in passing, so we didn't really dig into it very much, but I wanted to ask the question because I feel like we might be, you might've been onto something that would be relevant here, which is the uh, relationships between novices and experts within digital transformation or any sort of change initiative. Um, is that something you've studied or read up on or, or, you know, what are your thoughts on, and I don't know if this traces back, I think you were talking about in the context of your public health uh, experience, if I remember correctly, like doctors mm -hmm. and patients. Um, but right. Uh, yeah. I did study novices and experts in the yeah telemedicine consultation space. Um, it, yeah, it absolutely, it, it does. And uh, even using that word novice and expert, um, I mean, I get it. You know, I think expert, we're, we're talking about that vertical thinking normally, you know, is like that is somebody usually who has expertise, say, in software development or um, in finance or, you know, in medicine, it might be a specialty. Uh, and then the novice is someone who doesn't have that knowledge, that specific knowledge. Um, so 
what I'm finding is that those who exist more in the novice or follower space, that would even include like, citizens in a country, you know, followers, uh, we have a lot of responsibility. We have a big job to do, you know, and especially in this upcoming drastically changing exponential tech world we live in. Um, right now, I think where they might, where followers generally impede change is that, you know, followers, and I'm going to put myself as a follower because I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not a CEO, I'm not a department chair, I'm not, you know, go ahead and say I'm a follower. <laughs> you know, uh, we can't always expect leadership and authority to handle everything. We really can't. Uh, we have a responsibility as well to learn, to, you know, be curious, uh, to empathize, you know, to try to understand the perspectives of leadership as well. Um, but we tend to not do that. You know, we're just not trained that way. It's not baked into our cultures all over the world. And, and so the way that bleeds into, you know, the research I did in medicine is it, with, with telehealth is I spoke to, I interviewed numerous physicians across many different medical specialties, and they all consistently said patients are terrible information presenters. Um, terrible. So we, as a patient, we'll come to an appointment and we'll, we'll just expect the doctor to do everything, right? Ask the, we expect them to ask the questions, run the tests needed, as though we have zero responsibility um, in this process. If instead, you know, we were like, no, actually, housed in our brains is 90% or more of the information that healthcare providers actually need to help us, because that's also supported by research, you know? Uh, the best way to diagnose a patient's condition usually comes from their medical history. And what, how does a medical professional know your medical history? They have to, you have to tell them, you have to bring that information to the appointment. You know, medications you're on. If you have a rash, did you take a picture of its development every single day? And did you come and bring that to the appointment? Um, that would actually do a lot more to save people's lives than anything that a doctor can do. And that is cheap. That is actually not an expensive thing. And I think that in organizations, that's the thing that's almost maddening and in society in general, because usually what's required is the cheapest, easiest, simplest solutions. Um, that, even just listening, for example, imagine the, the money an organization can save if only each individual employee decided, hey, you know, what? I'm going to listen a little bit more instead of just judge things right off the bat. <laughs> um, but that's how it is. So, you know, I think, you know, as far as novices, experts, it, it absolutely all of it all of it will impede change. Even even an expert, you know, thinking, hey, I know best, you know, could, could impede change. Uh, in the management research, there's a concept called reverse mentorship that's kind of making its way into a little bit of the mainstream. And it's this idea of, you know, novices can actually mentor experts too. You know what I mean? It's not always the other way around. Um, they have interesting, meaningful knowledge and expertise also to bear in an organization. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that um, if there's a way to divide the chasm between novice and expert, not not that you expect the novice to become an expert or the expert to, you know, back up into being a, a novice, right. but 
it seems like at least in our world and, and maybe and I think maybe this is true in the medical field and other industries too but in the digital transformation world we see the dynamic often where an organization almost has this learned helplessness you know we're not the experts this is a big disruptive change to our organization so we're going to defer to you third stage consulting or you you know system mm-hmm. integrator software vendor or whoever whatever expert you want to plug in here we're we're going to defer to you to sort of fix this for us and it and it creates this sort of like you know expectation that I don't need to bring any real meaningful input to the table. And on the expert side, you have sort of the opposite, which is I've done this a million times. I've got the answers. I've seen organizations just like you, and this is how software should be deployed or how you should, you know, leverage a new technology or whatever. I'm oversimplifying two extremes here, but I think Mm -hmm. that dynamic seems like that can be, that creates a lot of problems in the world of transformation, blind spots. Yeah, Yeah, there's a reason I'm doing what I do and not what you do. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? What you do seems really hard. Yeah, yeah, it is. And um, yeah, but I think if we can be more mindful of that, you know, those differences, I think that's, that's huge. So maybe just a sort of a capstone uh, summary, sort of wrap up sort of question. What, what based on everything we've talked about and all your studies and just what you've learned about um, IT and, and change and uh, digital transformation over the years, what, what are some of the you know, key nuggets of advice you'd give to an organization that's about to start on a transformation or a change initiative? Right. Well, I mean, I, I, I exist more in the IT space uh, and as far as digital transformation, IT implementations, I, I mean, honestly, the things I would tell them that bear out from research are a lot of the things that you say to, you know, um, it, when you say you wish you could just drop digital from the word transformation, for example, me too, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's, I would say don't, don't focus so heavily on the tech. <laughs> you know, if just don't. That that's not where all of the problems lie. Also, consistently, time and time and time again, you know, research does show that you can take adequate tech, decent tech, not even the most expensive tech, and pair it with exceptional people and processes, and you will get far superior results than any organization that puts the latest and greatest, most expensive tech in their in their organization. It means nothing if you don't yeah. have the people and processes that know how to exploit it and leverage it. So I would say people and processes is really, I mean, it's not the fun part. It's not the shiny, sexy part of anything, <laughs> but that's where if you want to be successful, right? If you're looking for results, that's where you need to focus your energy. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting point. I agree with you. And it, it makes you wonder if, you know, every organization that's about to go through a transformation, if they were to just shift, say 20, 25%, let's say of their focus, resources, time, money on the technology, maybe buy 20, 25% less of what you're planning. Don't invest as much in the technology and shift some of that focus over to the people and process side of things that, I would take that bet every day, you know, over that yeah. that throttles back on their tech spending and increases that's, spending in the other areas. That's what my dissertation research showed too. So in, in telehealth um, consultations, uh, the most effective consultations, meaning they, they, they were able to diagnose the patient's health condition accurately, uh, they, that happened in an audio only condition. So this is a lab experiment mm-hmm. That happened with the lowest tech you can possibly have in that consultation, which is just talking like on the phone. Um, and but it was paired with 
uh, an exceptional interviewer. So the expert had to be really high in their interview skills and diagnostic skills. So it's their process skills, like, you know, what they're specialized in. And then on the, on the novice end, the patient end, they also had to have really high presentation skills. So they had to be the patients who came with the photos with the rashes, who came with their medical history. Who, so when you have those pieces in place, you, you only need really a phone, right? You know, because the information is exchanged through the humans in a very high quality way. Um, but I don't think we think about that enough. And, and, and training people, I think, it might be harder, but I think it's, it would save organizations so much money instead oh, of yeah. just trying to outsource it all to the tech. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, that's a good good place to leave it. I think if you're going to leave one one nugget or one, if you take one thing away from this discussion, I think that's a, a really good place to leave it. Um, well, good. Well, well, thank you for being on the show. That It flew by and I didn't get through all my okay. questions. The audience didn't, we didn't get to all the audience questions either, and we could easily spend another hour on this, but I, I want to thank you for being on the, the show here, Christine. Oh my gosh, thank you. And thank you for all the questions. And this was really, this is my first podcast for everybody <laughs> listening. Yeah. So thank you for joining me on my first podcast. All right. Thank you, Christina. Great conversation. Really interesting stuff. A lot of stuff I had not thought about and was not aware of as it relates to change and digital transformation. Um, so let's unpack some of those concepts a bit more. But first, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 59. We just had Christina Serrano on the show talking about the psychology of digital transformation and what were some of your observations or thoughts related to that conversation, Kyler? Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely a, a great conversation um, and exciting to have, you know, my um, my school where I learned so much um, be featured on Transformation Ground Control, so near and dear to my heart for sure. Um, I think it's always interesting, you know, when we do have professors on it the thing that always stands out to me is how how nervous they are and I'm always like you know you stand up in front of kids that can be ruthless <laughs> and you're nervous for this but she did such a great job especially I like how she explained you know what does information systems really mean and a lot of times we um, constitute information systems as kind of hard coded systems, as software, as those types of things. And she really said within that overall identity of information systems that it is the people, the process, and the technology. All of those should be the system, not the actual software. So I thought that was a, a really great way to put it. Um, she reminds me a lot. Do you know who Brene Brown is? 
don't. I feel like I should, or I, the name sounds familiar. But yeah, I'm not. yeah, I'm sure is you it? will. So Brene Brown is a, a a professor as well. She researches really intangible things a lot of time, like shame um, and psychology, and she's a well known um, author type of thing. Christina reminds me of that from the the technical side of the overall um, conversation um, on on more of an IT level. So talking about things like the synergy needed between these areas and just talking about how identity is really everything she said, which I wrote down. Um, and then our default is kind of defense and fear. And that's where a lot of kind of any sort of resistance is born from when it comes to that overall circle of life, if you will, Lion King reference, when it comes to people, process, and technology. Um, so I thought that was, you know, such a really great holistic observation of what really digital transformation should be to an organization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree. I also thought it was um, really interesting when we were talking about um, the learning process too, and I think that's really resonates with me. And I don't, I don't know about you, um, but I was never a great student because of I learned different than other people did, and a lot of times, you know, you want to be fit into this box. And I think there's an opportunity now as we not only evolve the learning process, but to evolve the overall technology industry to fit a different way of creative thinking. And I think that made me really excited about her future students in just seeing that as something that could be a value, not, hey, you know, you can't do calculus. So that means you can't be, you know, uh, involved in the technology space that that mis misperception seems to be evolving within higher education, which I'll be honest, I never really thought that was going to happen. You know, I thought that was just kind of a box you had to check, kind of get through it. And then when you're in the career space, you're able to express yourself differently than academia. But it seems as though, at least in, in her um, overall uh, classes, that is actually changing. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I did too. I, that was really cool. Um, and then I, I wanted to ask you, since I, I wrote down um, the brain sensing nets <laughs> when she was talking about that. And my mind went right to wearable technology, right? So we have the watches, we have the smart necklaces, we have now what if we have like wearable nets, like in hats or something that can sense our overall brain function. And it sounds like that technology is something that's really becoming um, a data point, especially within kind of when we talk about learning processes or just the overall psychology of how a body responds physically or how a person um, responds in different scenarios and leveraging technology to be better understand that. I think that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that type of technology, but I guess it doesn't surprise me after seeing what all has evolved over the last many years here. In the technology space, but yeah, that's super interesting. I, I, um, that was new to me for sure. There's a lot, there's a lot that we talked about in that conversation that I wasn't aware of and that was new to me. Yeah, definitely. I think we could do like a crown, you know, I think we could take it like up a level for me at least. I'd like a, you know, a, a brain sensing crown. <laughs> right. <laughs> like the right. whole princess theme. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah the kids, absolutely. Your daughter would love that too, I imagine. Oh, she, she absolutely would. Yeah. She, um, she has a purse and, and to be, I don't carry a purse usually because I just have 
all kinds of stuff just spread around. I usually just have my wallet or the diaper bag, but she's gotten so into carrying her purse and she hides all of her brother's stuff in it and hides it in her room. So she's diabolical. She's 18 months old, just to you know, set, the, set the stage. <laughs> I grew up so fast these days. <laughs> I know, right? Just, you know, pilfering her brother's favorite things in her purse. So, right. <laughs> um, but I also thought it was great when uh, Christine was talking about kind of that alignment of values. And that's what we kind of talked about in our hot topics and, and seems to be a common theme within our 2022 content is really, we, we talked about the great reshuffling and those types of things. And in this employee-centric market where, you know, you really are kind of in a place where there's lots of opportunity, aligning with the values of the organization. And then she really touched on something, and I'd love to hear your feedback on it, is that the resistance to change or those barriers really exist in the individual. You know, the leadership can create this culture. They can, you know, really preach the message of, you know, we're a culture of innovation. We're constantly changing, growing, etc. But unless we as individuals understand our own personal barriers to change, then we become resistors even unintentionally. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, um, it was a good reminder that there's so many different variables in managing change the individual level, the organizational level, and even the broader cultural level. So it's, um, I think we kind of alluded to those three layers, but that third layer of the individual, I mean, you think about an organization that has say 10,000 employees, that's 10,000 different personalities and 10,000 different reasons why an organization might and is likely to resist change, no matter how well-intentioned the people are and, um, you know, no matter how aligned they are with the vision of the organization or whatever the case may be, you still, we're still human. We fear change. Um, we're driven by fear and you know, a certain amount of distrust and whatnot. So all that stuff does, does add up and, and it creates that resistance, whether it's intentional or unintentional or otherwise. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think about myself, I started much of my career in sales and now that I'm on, you know, more of the system side of the industry and understanding that I, I have, I am a self-proclaimed resistor. I never did the, we'd get like a new um, system where we're supposed to be tracking like sales data. And I would be like, why would I have to do that? Because I'm selling the most. So obviously my process works just fine. So no need to do any of these things. And now I look back on it. I'm like, oh my goodness, I was the problem. I was the, I was the key to, you know, the change resistance. And I didn't even know it because of my unwillingness as an individual um, to see that that opportunity and as an influencer when you are kind of on the top of the pyramid and you don't do what you know the the organization is essentially asking you to do that trickles down to a lot of different um, areas as well and I think that that was really kind of an eye-opening uh, piece of feedback for me that a lot of times it does start with the individual and that has to be um, you know a, an overall motivation yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you, you bring up sales or you talk about sales organizations that you've been involved with. And that's a common um, area of resistance within a lot of organizations, because when you're sales driven, you're focused on typically one thing and that's selling and entering data into a system is not selling. And or at least, you know, if you're a salesperson, that's that's the mentality. It doesn't help me make more commission. doesn't help my pay. doesn't help. I'm not measured on it. So why am I going to support the change? So that's the, you know, you really have, it's a good reminder that that's a, a reason why you need to 
understand what motivates people and what drives them and why might they resist the change, even if they say they're on board with it, even if they're excited on the surface, that those are good examples of things that will undermine that, that excitement for any sort of change. Absolutely. And then the last thing I'll touch on, um, because I don't know that we've ever really talked about this before, but when you have this, this um, concept of a new culture because of your new employees and they bring a whole different um, aspect from just a, an age perspective a lot of times um, or an experience perspective. And I, I think that's something that's definitely worth some awareness um, around, especially for organizations that are very intentional about their culture. They hire for culture. You know, they have an aligned set of values, but then they also have to know that it is really free flowing depending on the individuals that are involved in your company culture. Uh, and that's kind of something that we've never really touched on before, but certainly an important dynamic um, that Christina touched on. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I, I think that's a, a good point. I think that question originated from the audience, if I remember correctly. I think that was one of the audience questions on that brought that up. So that was a really good point for sure. But an excellent conversation, and I think we learn a lot from academia um, when we do study research, but it, it's interesting of all of the professors and researchers we've had on ground control, um, all of them really point back to the in importance of the people side. And the technology, though still important, is really almost a subcategory to the overall culture and people and processes of the business. So such a great interview. Um, thank you for taking the time to talk to her and go Rams. Yeah, right. And just to clarify, you're, you're talking about the CSU Rams, right? College I am. State I University. am. I'm not talking about the LA Rams, but I am very excited that Russell Wilson is coming over to the good side to the Broncos. So yes. Yeah. For those of you that, are, that aren't in the United States, the, the American football team of the city where Kyler and I are um, just uh, recently acquired a a big name quarterback in Russell Wilson. So um, good to good to have those uh, sports references in here as well. So we'll we'll take a a quick break. When we come back, we're going to bring on uh, Scott Janke from the Third Stage team, talking about organizational alignment and implementations. And I was going to say we're going to shift gears, but actually a lot of the same stuff we just talked about will also apply in this uh, next conversation as well. So we'll come back. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back with more transformation ground control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com 
and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. Our next segment will actually be with another professor who actually is on the third stage team as well, Dr. Scott Jenke. Um, He's a professor down in Dallas, and we've started going through some case study content development around some of our our current and um, past clients. So I have this conversation with him just regarding one of our small to mid-sized clients that's involved in manufacturing. He talks about organizational alignment and the importance of having that established before um, technology implementation. So Scott, welcome to the show. My name's uh, Dr. Scott Jenke. I actually am a senior manager at Third Stage, uh, really going about the business of helping organizations either assess their processes and how they use their incumbent tools or to assist them in, in looking at new opportunities for uh, changes in ARP or another technology that would enable them to meet their business goals. Excellent. And today we're actually talking about a case study, so a specific work that you've done with one of our clients within our community today. So can you give us kind of an overview of the reason why this client reached out to Third Stage? Yeah, it's a, and it's, it's a familiar story, quite honestly. Um, the organization feels like they were disconnected with their international offices. Uh, silos of, of information were present. The, the incumbent technology really wasn't being used uh, across the organization. Uh, and people were, were complaining about all the challenge they had with getting documents and information from another department uh, and really led us to kicking off the project with them to look at their technology and potentially advising them to maybe move into a, a new ERP implementation. Excellent. And without revealing our client's name, um, can you give us kind of an overview of the size, industry, location, culture of this specific company? Sure, sure. They're a um, uh, manufacturer in the Midwest. Uh, They have about 350 employees. Uh, They have offices in Europe and in Asia. Uh, And their business vertical is on the manufacturing side of laser or dot pen inscribing tools. So all the manufacturers out there that need to have some product identification, their systems are the ones that embed those numbers on those, uh, those uh, applications or products. So Hardy Davidson is a client of theirs and uh, cool. uh, the serial number you see on their frame is using their technology. Excellent, very neat, very interesting company it sounds like to work with. So how did Third Stage come in and help them kind of solve this problem of just overall technology optimization, it sounds like. Sure. I I think most clients that engage third stage probably have an idea of where the project's going to lead them. Uh, But we start from a more holistic, independent perspective in that we don't want to be geared or directed in our assessment. We want to look at it from a a 30,000 down to a 300 foot level where we look at technology, the obstacles around that, processes, but also the human aspect of the organization and, and uh, uh, rather interesting findings when we performed our organizational readiness assessment that really highlighted the fact that simply changing technology was not the direction we needed to go. 
Interesting. So what were the, the results of the project? You know, what did you end up recommending to them after you did all of these assessments and kind of got your hands dirty within the organization, got to know them really well? Yeah. And, you know, they're probably very similar to a number of small to medium companies that want to be bigger is that they they have grown organically, but also through acquisitions and uh, uh, sister companies that that become part of the, the main uh, organization is that they they had systems of uh, independence, so to speak. So the folks in Europe had their own system. The folks in uh, Asia right. had their own systems, the United States. And really, uh, the, the linchpin of our recommendation was, as I mentioned earlier, the ORA survey, is that there was a significant amount of obstacles and perceptions that any future change without fixing the foundation was going to be fraught with errors and problems. So our recommendation wasn't necessarily just go out and buy a new system and, and deploy it uh, company-wide, is to, is to really look at the, the basic or what I call blocking and tackling. So data was all over the place. There wasn't any kind of structure or management around that. Uh, we actually recommended that they dispose of certain systems and bring those organizations or their departments onto the main platform. So there's a lot of things that organizations would do prior to implementing a, and selecting and implementing an ERP system. And we actually advised them as our output of this project to do just that. Get the, get the environment and the organization set up for success for maybe a future ERP selection mm -hmm. implementation. So getting systems integrated with each other, training people, that was also another big highlight of our organizational assessment survey is that people just didn't believe they were well-trained with the last implementation. So actually kind of going back a few steps and, and looking at this from what are the simple quick wins that we can do an organization that you would need to do anyway prior to a major ERP implementation. Um, and I would say that the, the leadership was, was surprised by those findings, but really once we went through the justification for that and that every, every item that we recommended were, were activities they would have to do anyway, mm -hmm. we just wanted to put the pause on them spending any significant amount of money that would just introduce more errors and problems into their organization. So it sounds like you recommended that they needed to get their organization aligned around whether it's business processes, whether it's their optimization of their own technology, training, integration, data management, those types of things. So when you do that type of recommendation, do you give the client steps to make sure that they are establishing that, that strong foundation? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, most of our projects, maybe not all, but most of our projects do include a some form of roadmap that when we provide our recommendations, uh, and I've been on the side of, of running operations myself, and mm -hmm. I've never liked it when gave, people gave advice, but didn't tell you how to implement yeah. that advice. Mm -hmm. So we do advise kind of uh, stages of, let's say, what you can do immediately, what you can do within one to three months, what you can do in the next 12 months, and then maybe the next year. So organizations cannot stop doing their business. And so giving them a direction, a roadmap is so important because without leadership and guidance around that, uh, too many companies would probably start in the process of, of improving themselves uh, in three or four months and then stop. So right. this gave them a little kind of cookie crumb kind of process that they could follow for literally the next 12 months and have great success because they're achievable objectives. 
excellent. So you kind of gave them a game plan, a playbook, if you will, to kind of lay out what the, the next steps are to achieve that optimization within their organization. Absolutely, absolutely. And so can you just enlighten us to third stage is a technology agnostic and independent consultancy. So what does that mean for a client that may engage you to say, hey, I think I need new ERP software. And then you come out on the other end being like, actually, the organization needs some restructuring and just some tightening up before we can do that. Do you care if they buy software or not? Good question. Uh, you know, we don't have a, a financial relationship with software vendors out there. We have relationships with the vendors because we have uh, selected ERP systems and other point solutions. We've implemented them. Uh, so we know what's what I would think would be the best fit for organizations. And I think that agnostic perspective uh, allows us to actually make a re recommendation of don't buy more software. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that just gains more credibility uh, for our reputation, but also our clients are realizing that uh, when they do client reference calls, we are going to give you the truth and we will give you a direction that doesn't necessarily have some kind of financial impact to us. Uh, and so if our recommendation is buy software, buy this software, or don't buy software at all, I think that gives us that agnostic perspective that I think most consulting firms don't have. Very interesting. Well said. Thank you for taking us through that process. So with this specific client, what were some key challenges that you ran into when working on their specific scope of work? Yeah, I think, uh, and, and this is kind of in line with kind of what I think most companies have experienced over the last couple of years with the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. Their sales took a significant hit. And so the pressure to improve the performance of the organization was pretty relevant and uh, uh, matter of fact in all the workshops that we had that the organization was kind of stressing potentially too much of what they can do with their current system to try to get back those sales. So, uh, and I don't want to uh, uh, be a seller of the ORA survey too much, but uh, that was really enlightening because we heard grumblings, we heard perspectives from the workforce in the workshops and some of our one-on-one -on -one interviews, but it was really the survey that highlighted some significant uh, obstacles for any significant change going forward. So one of the things that we tried to adopt is allowing the folks in the workforce who will be part of any implementation to be part of the solution. So we identified uh, easy wins, hard wins throughout the uh, evaluation uh, and really educating our sponsor about what we're finding, but still mm -hmm. keeping even our agnostic view of who's saying what yeah. uh, uh, at arm's reach so that people could have a voice in the decision-making. So Almost going to what we do in a, a RFP uh, ERP selection is that we allow the decision making to be a collective perspective for all parties. So this isn't our recommendations; it's what we heard from the team, based with our experience, becomes the recommendations out of a project like this. Excellent. And and when you are going through this kind of cultural survey, if you will, or the readiness assessment. When you conduct them, it seems like kind of a vulnerable or sensitive process that can make employees sometimes uncomfortable and hold them back from being completely honest. 
How do you make sure that there is autonomy within that process? Yeah, we walk through how this process works. So outside of some maybe identification questions like what department do you work in? How long have you been with the company? That's the closest personal information we collect. Um, our tool does not collect uh, email addresses, uh, even IP addresses to some extent. So it is really agnostic. I don't know who fills out anything. Um, and quite honestly, um, probably the folks that have the most uneasiness is actually some of the leadership that we work with because we ask the workforce how leadership performs. Do they give you encouragement and workable goals? Do they support change? Do they allow further training for system implementation? So we actually kind of put all the leadership uh, uh, on the questionnaire from a perspective of how does the workforce view them uh, before we make any kind of recommendation for a significant change in the organization. So it's probably less of the individuals who fill out the surveys and more about does the leadership really want to know the answers to these questions. Right. That's a really interesting perspective. So do you feel like they did want to know the answer to the questions? Quite honestly, and I think uh, uh, basing all the findings that we collect in a project like this, the survey, workshops, one-on-one -on -one interviews, looking at company documentation that they provide us, when we embed them all together and link them, I think the findings help support our recommendations. So going back to your question about, you know, how is third stage agnostic and how do we view software uh, purchases? Well, for us to recommend changes that really won't be successful based upon our findings would be very short-sighted on our part. Um, obviously, we want to be part of any future project with our clients, but quite honestly, we need to be realistic in our expectations in our recommendations. So for them to go off and go do this magical uh, project that will solve all their problems, even though we know that won't be true based upon mm -hmm. our findings, that's not good for our long-term longevity either. So uh, I think the leadership want to know reality. Uh, so that they know what they're getting into. Again, having been on that side of the fence, I never wanted to have a consulting firm or software integration firm sell me a, a, a bag of goods that they potentially are going to know that it's not fruitful for us to pursue. Right. And that, that makes a, a lot of sense. And I think it's a, a pretty typical exercise that a lot of leadership teams go through within this process. It's just kind of an overall awareness of where their business is at and yep. technology as we know is never a solution it should be you know an optimization tool for an already strong and healthy thriving culture so what were some key milestones that you and your team achieved during this project milestone in the sense of uh, phases that we did or, or some of the deliverables that we produced I would say milestones could be however you interpret it, not to you know answer a question with a question, but what were some of the key points that you feel like you were actually making an impact on the business? So great question. Uh, and I think going back to you know how do employees feel about a project like this? Um, more than anything, uh, we stress that that we're not out there looking to see what they're doing their job. So could we could the organization do without their services? This is about most organizations wanting to grow without necessarily hiring a ton of folks. So when we level set with the folks that we talk to, 
when they start understanding that we're here to help, uh, but more importantly, we're probably asking questions that the leadership probably never had time to do as well. Mm -hmm. So as we go through workshops, the survey, uh, we actually did a, a technology uh, review of solutions out there just to see whether there would be a better fit uh, and providing that feedback, not again, just to the leadership, but to the, to the uh, departments as well. So I think the engagement that we provide along the way, uh, we, we kind of allow them to be, again, part of the solution making. So between the survey, the workshops, uh, our analysis of other ERP solutions out there, uh, really gain the traction from the folks there. So along the way, whether you call them milestones or stage gates along the process, we allow them to kind of level set every time we kind of paused in the project. Uh, and so I think it allowed them to change direction if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. uh, or ask greater clarification about some of our findings without just waiting to the end. So we have a very uh, strict methodology in gaining leadership buy-in along the way. Mm -hmm. And so those milestones or phases of a project allow us to kind of stop, pause, understand what's going on before we get too far down the road. So that when we give our recommendations at the end, they're not surprised, they're not challenged with it because we've kind of given them the education along the way. Excellent. And do, do you know how this company is doing now? Now that yeah, they I do actually, it's uh, they're, they're actually uh, sales are increasing. They've made some of the changes that we recommended. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, uh, my phone is ready for any kind of call from the leadership to, to come help them. Uh, because again, it's, it's very challenging for projects to take place of, of any significance while the operations is doing what they're doing day to day. Uh, and so we don't expect, and I never expect, that a client's going to go off and do their own uh, project by themselves. I highly encourage it. Uh, knowledge retention is great, so I encourage all organizations to try. But really, they need to come help and, and uh, allow us to assist them in that process. So they have made some of the, the blocking and tackling, so to speak, uh, yeah. uh, changes. But it's just kind of, it's, it's not a one and done kind of activity. Sure. This is an evolution Mm -hmm. uh, for organizations. So I'm hoping that uh, we'll get a, a, a repeat uh, or at least an opportunity uh, to come back and assist them along this journey. Uh, but they are, uh, sales are up. They've made some changes. They've seen some uh, uh, results from that. It's just keeping the, the pace of what they need to, uh, to grow. Yeah. Well, it sounds like those recommendations have made a positive impact um, as they continue to evolve within their overall strategies. So what did you specifically learn from this project, if anything? Uh, that's uh, as much as I think uh, processes can dictate success or technology can dictate success or having clear objectives will drive success. It really comes down to the people. Mm -hmm. um, as long as there are humans within our organizations, uh, their attitudes, skill sets, training, uh, workload, all that come into play of, of making anything successful. Um, too often, you will see demonstrations of ERP systems that are fabulous, right? Newest technology, it's great. Yeah. But then we want everyone to do their job, plus implement a system, plus learn new systems, plus change, and they have work-life balance as well. We can never forget the, the individual in any of our decision-making because they're going to be the success factor or not. And so uh, uh, I keep learning uh, that the, the individual is a very strong component to making any of our projects successful. Uh, and I think this 
project didn't necessarily um, uh, give me insight to that for the first time. It just keeps reiterating the strength yeah. that the individual has in success. Sure, reinforcing that organizational change management and need for those types of initiatives and strategies, certainly. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for talking to me today, Scott. Um, and okay. if anyone has any questions for Scott about this specific project or anything in the manufacturing or digital transformation space, please feel free to reach out to him directly. His contact information is on the Contact Us section of our website. Thank you so much, Scott, for joining me today and taking us through this really interesting case study. I'm going to unpack it with Eric when we come right back. Um, this is Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. Eric, I think this is the first time you've heard our case study with Scott. So I wanted to get um, you know some of your feedback. Obviously, Scott is a professor. He's very articulate. He's very good at understanding all of the nuances needed, specifically on the organizational side. But he referenced um, a lot of organizational kind of issues within uh, just just having clients that might have kind of a disassembled digital transformation team. And I'm wondering if that's kind of a common theme where you do have to come in, strategize, saying, you know, this stakeholder should be involved, this stakeholder, it's not time yet, but feedback is still important, and how you go about doing that. Yeah, it's, it's uh, definitely more art than science, but you, you do want to make sure you have all the key stakeholders involved and all the, uh, you know, the key parts of the business represented in the overall transformation. And, and ultimately, that you're you want to make sure that your organization is taking ownership of the project because it's easy to really uh, sort of delegate to the experts. And I think we sort of, we touched on that in the conversation with Christina a bit too, uh, earlier in the show about that, that sort of disconnect that you sometimes see between the novices and the experts. And you may view yourselves as a novice um, if you're a company that's going to go through a transformation because you don't know as much about technology or digital transformation, perhaps. But you really are the experts in your business, your industry, what it is you're trying to become. And so you need to marry those two sets of expertise in order to be successful. And that requires, you know, involving some of the key stakeholders throughout the throughout the business. So it, it just depends on what the the scope of the transformation is. You want to make sure you involve people that are going to be affected by the scope of the transformation. Yeah. And with that, make sure that there is alignment uh, on all of those tiers, which Scott kind of talks about the need for that executive alignment, but also the project team alignment around those strategic goals and objectives um, for any transformation to be successful. 
One other thing that I'll just mention from this conversation that we don't talk a lot about on transformation ground control, but where third stage really comes in is building those demo scripts for the vendors. So we talk sometimes about, you know, how to make sure you're getting the most out of your demos. But what third stage does is they come and they, they understand the business goals, not from the vendor side, what they want you to buy. And I think, um, you know, we talk a lot in these case studies about how that integration from our actual team that handles and executes the projects uh, and how they do that. And I think that's something that they point out here that's really interesting is a lot of times vendors will want to show you their latest and greatest, you know, most sparkly version when really the business is looking for certain functionalities or at least looking to understand how it would integrate with their business. And that's really where a, an independent third party comes into play. And I thought that was, you know, well said there. Yeah. And, and really just driving with and leading with the business need first rather than the technology. And I think that's a subtle but really important mindset or mind shift, mind shift, I don't know, whatever, changing your mindset. Um, is that That's a really important part of that. Absolutely. Um, and if you do have questions for Scott or want to reach out to him, we'll put his contact information below. Um, you can also reach out to me and I'm happy to um, put you in touch with whomever. We will have um, all of these case studies available on our YouTube channel. We do one for each industry. This was manufacturing. And then we do one for each one of our services. This was implementation. Um, we have another one up there, for example, that um, talks about a software selection and really digs into what are those demos, what do those scripts look like um, with some of our other team members. So if you'd like to check those out, head over to the Third Stage YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah, great. And that's a good resource uh, for everyone that anyone that wants to check that out. And uh, you can also, uh, speaking of our YouTube channel, be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. If you just look for Third Stage Consulting on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to us there. We put out new videos weekly. And uh, you can also follow me on YouTube and my YouTube channel as well. Um, on an individual level, we put out similar but different content all related to digital transformation. And you can also find us on all the social media platforms as well. So if you're on uh, Instagram or, or uh, LinkedIn, TikTok, whatever the case may be, Twitter, be sure to check us out and subscribe and follow us. And uh, we put out content daily on all those platforms. So uh, good good conversations here today. Thank you to our guests, Scott Janke and Christina Serrano. Of course, thank you to, to you, Kyler, for being part of the show as always. And thanks to our audience for all the great questions and feedback that you've provided on here as well. So uh, we will see you next week. We have new episodes every Wednesday of this show. We'll find you'll 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 find a new episode of ours next Wednesday as well. So uh, be sure to check that out. And in the meantime, have a great week and we'll see you next time on Transformation Ground Control. Mm -hmm.